Welcome to the Pierce Point Podcast. Today, we are going to go back into Luke chapter 5 and finish up what we, um, what we did not uh, deal with last time, and that was verses 27 through 39. Um, we deal with the call of Matthew, as well as a really interesting parable about wineskins and garments. So we're going to deal with that. But before we jump into that, I wanted to go back to the um, to the reading plan and deal with some of the talk at over points. Mike Van Fleet said, believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, and have faith in him. We are tempted daily not to follow you. Lord, let me be bold and use your strength to spread the good news. I mean, he can't ask for much uh, more concise of a prayer than that, and I think we all would agree that's what we want. That's a great prayer. The next one comes from Miss Emily Burcham, and she posted, again, this is this is the talk at over points uh, on Luke 4, but she really presents a very intriguing idea when she says, as we see the ministry of Jesus begin here in chapter 4, I am reminded of something that has intrigued me for years. Uh, We see Jesus here and later his disciples going about healing people and, she stresses, casting out demons. Numerous times it's recorded uh, was there an overabundance of demons wandering about at this time in history? I love that question. Um, I can't imagine that's the case. So what are we missing today? I am not of the camp with some Christians today who name a spirit for everything, casting out a spirit of frustration, sadness, pharisaical spirits, laziness, too much chocolate. I love it, Emily. I am with you completely. (laughs) Then she says, but seriously, uh, we can look around and see a great need for healing, uh, be it physical, emotional, relational. But the casting out of demons, it intrigues me. And I, I have to say it intrigues me. Uh, two, I think there is more than meets the eye to this story. What What are some of your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's good. It's a great it's a great question to ask, and it is one that you don't see a lot of churches or pastors delving into in this day and time. And it's a tough it's a tough subject, but I think uh, like many other things, all other things that are in the uh, scripture. Uh, there's something there for us. Uh, so I think we jump right into it and give it a give it a whirl. Yeah, I think we have to remain humble about this discussion and and come at it from a couple of different angles. either either one, uh, and these are going to be several angles that I that I think through in my head on a regular basis. <laughs> Either one, there was a serious abundance of demons wandering about uh, at this time in history, and there still are. Mm-hmm. Meaning that just because we don't see people casting them out, and just because we don't attack these spiritual situations um, head on, doesn't mean they don't exist. Mm-hmm. So the theory one is that there are still a lot of demons, or demon possessed people, or demon you know demon. There's a lot of demon activity, and it just simply goes unaddressed in the church. That's just option A, or option one. Option two would be that um, there is something more than just demonic uh, oppression or, or uh, possession going on here in, in this respect, that, that um, 
scholars across the board seem to agree that when the uh, boy is demon-possessed who is throwing himself into the fire in convulsive fits, that this is actually simply what many today would call, um, would call, um, what am I looking for? Epilepsy. Epilepsy, yes. And and so that this would be a manifestation of that. Now, there's some serious cautions to this kind of idea because if we expand that further to, say, take on mental illness or uh, any myriad of, of sicknesses, depression, all of these things, and then count them as demonic activity, demonic oppression, or demonic possession, you have a serious problem because we have famous preachers in history. You know, uh, I remember that um, Charles Spurgeon is one who was known to have a great deal of depression. Uh, I would be cautious to go saying depression is a demonic spirit that is is holding on to somebody. Uh, I believe that the Apostle Paul shows evidence of this when he says that we despaired of life itself at one point in the in the scriptures. There, There was a deep depression or, uh, you know, sense of sense of frustration and fear that he went through in ministry. So I think we've got to be cautious. So option one is there's still a lot of demonic activity. We just don't deal mm-hmm. with it. Option number two is it's demonic activity called by another name. And so we, we call it all these diseases or things like this. And, and in that category, we have to, we have to be careful not to go thinking that everybody who has uh, a mental disability or disorder is somehow demonically possessed. I, I just don't buy it. I don't think that that's a good way to do it. I do think that maybe in the case of epilepsy or something like that, maybe there is something that is happening there. Even still, be, being cautious, there are Christians who struggle with epilepsy. Yeah. They're not demon-possessed, so we've got to be careful there. Or third option it, this is just; these are just the options that bounce around in my brain. I'd love to hear more more options. But the other one is that there was a um, there was a unique moment in time. Uh, we we have no problem accepting the unique moment in time when when we're talking about the fulfillment of the atonement or or, or the completion of Jesus's work and the fulfillment of all things. We have no problem thinking what happened 2,000 years ago was a unique period of time. Maybe 2,000 years ago, it was a unique period of time. Mm-hmm. And Jesus came and he strong-armed a whole lot of demonic activity mm-hmm. that had been going on. Uh, these are just ideas of conjecture. We, we have to face them. We have to talk about them. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we're going to settle the problem today. But... No, no, we're not. And, and it is. It is very difficult for some folks to even believe that demons exist. I mean, I, here, here is the, uh, the truth of it is that it's, if you believe in Christ and, and if you believe he exists, you have to believe in Satan and the demon activity that we read about in the in the scripture. So I, I think it starts there. I think there's a I think sometimes there's a segment of folks who don't want to even believe that this goes on, and uh, and and because it's very difficult to explain. It is very difficult to go down this path. And once you get down this path, where do you take it from here? Where do you go? Uh, so it, it's a great question, a great question, Emily, a great subject matter, uh, one that is extremely difficult to uh, to completely uh, go through in a podcast. But it, but we would love to talk more about this. It's yeah. uh, uh, not a not not a uh, 
Not your usual question, though. That's no. for sure. So. And no small thing. And so that no small that, thing. That is why it's fun to it's fun to just concern ourselves with these ideas. Um, the next uh, comment or another comment comes from day five, and that was Luke chapter five, which we'll wrap up today. But uh, Lauren Peace had said, "My thought is how much faith it must have taken." to leave everything to go and follow Jesus in person, which is really going to set us right into the first part of this story of the calling of Matthew. Um, But she says, it takes faith enough to follow him and not see him. But if he were to come up to us now and say, drop everything and follow me, would we do it? Would we even have enough faith to know it was him? Sure, the Holy Spirit would reveal to us that he is Jesus, but with our culture today, uh, where we have so many distractions and can't seem to live without our phones, uh, I, I will... I will just confess I'm reading this from my phone right now. But anyway, <laughs> Lauren, I love that. But she she says, would we truly be able to do it? Just a thought. And uh, I've had this discussion uh, come up many times, this question come up many times, and that is, uh, don't you feel that it would have been easier to follow Jesus when Jesus was walking the earth than it is now? And um, for many reasons, which I would spend hours uh, on here, I believe that it was more difficult to follow Jesus when you saw him. Mm. We, what we're doing, and we do, this, we do this unconsciously, but what we're doing is we're reading what we know of a thing back into the past. But the people that were in the past didn't have our knowledge. They didn't know him to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so, yes, of course, there's all these ideas that say the Spirit of God is going to reveal this. And true enough, Spirit of God is going to reveal him. But if we just followed Peter's journey, we would find that Peter, although he follows Jesus, has no idea what he's doing in the beginning. And it isn't till later that Jesus says, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my spirit, you know, but my Father who is in heaven, right? I'm the one revealing these truths to you. And then he denies him three times. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of that, when Jesus reappears, he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter is just like this really dense, well, he's just like me. So, anyway, <laughs> so the idea is he's really dense and, and he didn't see it at first. And I think we have evidences of this constantly. Just because we see a story of somebody who leaves everything and follows doesn't mean they knew full well what they were following in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I think we see this in our Christian life. We are invited to follow Jesus and there is, a, there is something that happens. There is a moment that happens to us. And yet all the days of our life moving forward, we're discovering just what has happened to us or just what is happening to us. So I love the thought. I love the questions, Lauren. And they are questions I think that are going to puzzle the church forever because we can't ever just jump in a time machine and go back and find out what we would do. But it is my opinion that it would be harder to be in Peter's mm-hmm. shoes than mm-hmm. it is for me. I have the text of scripture. Mm-hmm. I have followers who have walked with Jesus throughout the ages of time. I have a great cloud of witnesses. Mm-hmm. And Peter is trying to believe this guy is the real Messiah uh, when he comes on the scene claiming yeah. it. It's pretty staggering. And, 
and and he had none of the things that you've just described. He did not have all that background mm-hmm. and all of the years of people of knowing folks that had followed Christ. And what comes to mind is that when they uh, when Jesus went to the cross, uh, those guys were completely for a time. They were they did not understand the entire. They did not understand how even they didn't understand why that had to happen first at the first. So much so that Peter lops off the the uh, high priest's servant's ear when they're trying to <laughs> arrest Christ. So he they're they're completely out of sorts and all this. And when they're there, they're they are once Jesus has gone to the cross, there was a time that they go back to doing their regular job and just like I, I'm sure that at that time seeing him walk and seeing him killed would have been, oh my gosh, this is over with. Our time with him is done. And so I, I, I somewhat agree. I think it would have been more difficult back then because uh, they would have seen, we would have seen things that we, for a time, we couldn't explain. We could not explain about how it turned out that way and why did he have to yep. go to the cross. And they, they lived it. Truth truth is that we, we have the power of hindsight. Yep. And so we're looking back at a thing. Meanwhile, uh, meanwhile the, um, uh, the apostles were looking straight in Jesus' eye and, and wondering if this, if this one is believable, if this, yeah. if this is true. And yeah. so there's, there's power in that. I, I, I also love all of the talk about miracles and casting out demons and all of that, uh, because as we talked in our podcast the other day, much of that uh, was, was designed, much of Jesus' actions were designed, were intended to show proof that he can forgive sins. Mm-hmm. And so we have very serious power there. So without further ado, we jump in to Luke chapter 5 and the calling of Levi or the calling of Matthew, and it is fascinating. So we're going to deal with this today, and then we're going to jump in tomorrow with uh, Luke chapter 7 and by the end, of, or Luke chapter 6, and by the end of the week, we will have caught up with everything that we need to do. So what stands out to you about I, this? I, got, I like the idea of calling uh, Matthew or Levi, as he was called, uh, a tax collector of all people. He was a he was a guy. Tax collectors in that day would have uh, were guys that that uh, that was a highly sought after job. That was a job that paid well because they could extort money out of folks. They the Roman Roman government had a certain amount of of money and taxes that they wanted, and anything that they got over that, we've talked about this before, they were able to keep. Now here was an interesting piece about the tax collector. These the, he he was obviously a Jew. Once they went to work for the Roman Roman uh, government, they were excommunicated from the synagogue. They were not allowed to be in a courtroom and do any court or trial, not allowed to be a witness to anything. Uh, there sometimes, many times, uh, their families would disown them as a traitor uh, if if they came from a, 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 a Jewish Jewish family, and most of them did. So, it was a job that was, while it was sought after because you could make a lot of money, they were hated. And, and, and I, I just, 
And this is the guy. This is that the guy. Jesus calls. So, in other words, you can make a whole lot of money, but all the people hate you. It sounds exactly. like politics. Okay. So, so verse twenty-seven. After he went out, noticed uh, a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth. He said to him, "Follow me." Now, this is the same same idea that we're seeing with Peter and James and John and 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 all of those. And so he says, "Follow me." And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And and this is a seems to be a favorite phrase of Luke's, he left everything behind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mark tells us that they left uh, Zebedee, their father, James and John left Zebedee, their father. Uh, This this is still all wrapped into they left everything. Mm -hmm. Mark connected with Luke seems to communicate that, um, that the everything they left was very serious. It wasn't, it wasn't a small, it's not that they left the stuff that was in the back of their Buick that day yeah. <laughs> and went and followed Jesus. It was, they, they literally walked away yeah. from it all and followed after Jesus. And so this tax collector does this. Now, if we put that together with the, the background you just gave us, now, now what we have, and we have to look at the risk of this. It's pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. He has left everything he had to make a lot of money, Mm-hmm. The ostracizing of his family or, or his family ostracizing him. So he is out in his family circle. He is in, uh, to use a crude phrase, he's in bed, if you will, with the Romans, mm-hmm. which is not a good thing. And now, after all of that, he's walking away from that to follow after this guy claiming to be mm-hmm. a messiah uh, that that we're going to find out doesn't set well with many people. Yeah. So there's something really big about his willingness to yeah. walk away. Yeah, it, it's it's actually it it strikes me even somewhat more so than some of the others because he couldn't have quickly gone back to this job again. This was a highly sought after job, and for him to follow Christ. The Romans would have said, "We no, no, you're not coming yes. back to work for us," yes. uh, because and and they would have filled that job com- quickly, quickly. So he he could not go back. While the other one, you know, the others, if they fished, they could have gone back to that exactly. fishing. He did not have that. No. didn't have that option. So now, it was it was really big for him. The story gets even bigger in verse twenty nine because. Um, we tend to we tend to read this without that kind of backdrop. We tend to read it and we go, okay, just more details. It's not that big of a deal. Well, well, Luke is a detail-oriented person, yes, but he's he also specific and and has a goal for his details. So 29, and Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. So this is a man of means. He can do that, right? And look who he invites. Yeah. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors. And then there's this and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Now, if you are, when you get saved, when you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and you are changed, there is this tendency that you run to your people group. You run Mm -hmm. to your, uh, your group of people, and you say, I found life. I found something here. These people were all on the outskirts. There was nothing for them. And can you imagine the one who finds joy, who finds salvation, who believes this message? He goes straight to his buddies and says, 
I want you to know there's a place that we can belong. These guys hadn't belonged anywhere. Mm -hmm. So if it truly is in this framework, and of course, this is all, these are all things that are fun to continue a discussion about, but if it truly fits into this framework, which I believe it does, he's going out to a series of outcasts of a sort. They are a kind of outcast. They had wealth, they had money, they were able to do really well, but nobody liked them. Yeah. So they were an outcast of sorts. And Levi goes to those guys and says, you got to hear this guy. And look, they all come and they're listening. Yeah. They're listening. Yeah. Now that makes all the Pharisees mad because they're the quote unquote in crew, but, or the in crowd, but he goes to them and they're reclining at the table yeah. with yeah. him. I'm sure that they, uh, Pharisees that we're going to talk about here in verse uh, 30, uh, I'm sure they knew who Matthew was. Uh, most everyone knew who the tax, who the tax collectors and, and uh, they call and sinners and publicans, which is a whole other group of folks who handled property and things for the government of Rome, who typically were Jews. But the, these guys knew who they were. And uh, as you've well said, it is... Uh, Matthew or Levi goes goes to his friends and and says, "Oh my gosh, th- this is the guy." Yeah. He he had had some sort of Jewish upbringing because he was he was a Jew. So when Jesus came to him, it was like th- this was the guy. I, I don't know. It would be interesting uh, to to know what what went on in their mind when they saw Christ and, and it's just I would so agree. sometimes some we can glean some things from the scripture that we do know, but other times it just makes me think, wow, what a story this is. What a story. So in verse 30 he says the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling. <laughs> yeah. And who do they grumble yeah. to? To the disciples. To the disciples. <laughs> they, they're, they're not going to go, go to Jesus. Jesus. They're grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why, why are you mm. doing this? You can see their view uh, before when it says that um, they, there was a crowd of tax collectors and other people. Look at how the Pharisees address them. Tax collectors and those other people are just flat out sinners. Well, so it's sinners. the tax collectors and their sinners. And Jesus answers and says to them, I, I, there's something amazing about yeah. this dialogue, but, but what stands out to you about this? Oh, my. When he, when he uh, uh, says to them, well, well, first, I can see Jesus, say, he, he knows that they've gone to the disciples and, and asked, that, asked that question. And I can, just in my mind, if I was playing this out in a story, I would say, uh, he probably said, hey, guys, I, I, I've got this question. No yeah. problem. Let me handle this. <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> but he, it, what he says, uh, uh, it, it, those who are well don't need, a, don't need a doctor, but those who are sick. And I've come to call the right, I've come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to, to repentance. I, I, I can uh, I can imagine that uh, the uh, Pharisees and the scribes had to wonder exactly what he meant by that because did, how, how did he see them? Yes, did, were they in, which, which 
people group were they in according to Jesus? And, the, and so you can see these guys, maybe their first perspective is to say, okay, that's a, that's a fair enough answer. You've come to call the righteous. Uh, you've come to call the sinners, not the righteous. And like you said, the, the first thought is, well, yeah, that's why he didn't invite us to right, the party, right? right? <laughs> because, because we are the righteous. Now, um, there's a lot that comes up into this discussion here because it can get muddy. A lot of people, you know, of course, we remember Romans, no one is righteous, no, not one. Um, we have to understand what Paul is getting at here. Uh, we cannot make ourselves righteous. It is, it is a gift of God. He is, it is by grace. So that is how that works. And at the same time, the scripture itself, we've read it in Luke 1, 2, and 3, uh, of people who the author says that God saw as righteous. Yeah. We've got Simeon, we've got we've got uh, Zechariah, we've got Elizabeth, we we have Mary. All of these people are said to be righteous. Now, either either they're lying in chapter 1 and 2 mm-hmm. uh, or or we have another problem. I think we have a better we need to gain a better understanding of what is actually being said here. Now, Jesus is also taking on a little bit of a different model and that is, hey, if you're righteous, in the Old Covenant, it's the same way. If you're righteous, that is, you're trusting God by faith, then, then hey, we're going to walk by faith. We're going to do this idea. Now, none of that takes into consideration the fact that Jesus still has to die for the sins of humanity, but he's not going to the cross yet. Mm-hmm. We're in his ministry. So, so the idea is, if you're walking by faith, great. Now, what he'll tell us later is, if you were walking by faith, you'd know that I am God, Absolutely. right? Yeah. But but this is this is, he has to point this out later in their thick little brains, yeah. so their heads. So, but the idea here is that he didn't come to call the righteous; he came for the sinners and to call them to repentance. What we will connect later is that this is kind of Jesus's way of saying. I've come for everybody who's a sinner, and y'all are. You just don't know it yes, yet. Yes. And that is where we've got to get to to mm-hmm. make that case. So. They did not see themselves in that group of uh, sinners. They, did, they certainly did not believe that. And I, I think it's interesting in verse uh, 33, so they, they invoke the name of John the Baptist of all people who they, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it is interesting that they say, and they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The, the, the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. So they kind of invoke the name of John, putting themselves on the same level as John. And then they said, but yours eat and drink. Yeah. 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 So you, something's not right here, Jesus. You got to get these guys straightened out. <laughs> so a, cu- a couple of pieces I think that are that are worthy of consideration is that Luke changes Mark's words. Now, mm. by this, we don't mean that he changes it to where they compete in their meaning. Mark simply says that your your disciples don't fast. And, and Matthew comes in and says, and quotes this whole thing and says, uh, but yours eat and drink. Well, that's the same thing. You exactly. don't fast, which means you're eating and drinking. Yeah. Okay. So it's the same concept, but this not eating and drinking is this yet again, repeated statement of Luke over and over. Maybe, maybe what we would, would refer to as a favorite expression. And so he's tying this 
very tightly with the idea of the accusation that's posed about Jesus that he eats and drinks with tax collectors. Mm-hmm. He eats and drinks with tax collectors. And so, so number one, what you have is you have the disciples and you have Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors, and you have the Pharisees complaining and saying, um, well, not, not always the Pharisees. Right here, we have we have them coming and saying, um, John often, John's disciples fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. There is a part of this where he's lumping his disciples. They're lumping the disciples in with the accusation against Jesus. You guys have a problem. What is going on with you guys? So there's more to this than just, at least in Luke's phrasing, there's more to this than Explain to us your actions. There is a bit of accusation, it seems, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. I'm reading it. So that's it just. It seems some that Jesus had he definitely had had an, had an advantage over them because, and we'll see later. He he knew exactly what they were thinking. He knew what was in their heart. He knew the uh, what what was behind the questions that they were asking him. So when he chose to answer them and chose. To put the put the circumstances and and to use the circumstances that were there, it was quite interesting because he would he had no uh, he, he knew what was in their heart, so they they couldn't hide anything from him. The motives of their heart were plain and open to him, so he could honest he could honestly answer them and give them an answer that cut straight to the heart. and And he does this a lot. Yes, absolutely. Another just a point of uh, just consideration in Luke chapter 11, which of course we'll get to in in a few weeks, but in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, um, uh, the scripture records that uh, John's disciples understood a certain level of prayer. They were taught certain prayers. Here's what 11.1 says. It says, it happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Um, Luke is the Luke is the one, Mark's gospel again, does not record uh, that John's disciples often fast and offer prayers. Luke adds the prayer piece. They just talk about John's disciples fasting. And so they want to know what is actually going on here. So he says, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. Well, those prayers were taught to them by John. And so they they were specific prayers. And what we'll learn later is that Christians will pray specific prayers. But I think that those are important pieces of of, uh, context, pieces to remember in all of this. Um, Learning specific prayers was not weird in in this time. It is weird today because we kind of don't like liturgy, even though we all have it. We, we don't like structure, but they learned prayers. John's disciples learned prayers. And then right after this question from Jesus's disciples, Jesus teaches them to pray along Absolutely. these lines, yes. our Father yes. which art in heaven. Anyway. I, I, I love the answer in verse uh, 34. He says, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the, bride, while the bridegroom is with them, can you? <laughs> 35, but the days will come, and when the bridegroom was taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. He took a very uh, well-known example for them, uh, a, a common example, which was a, 
a wedding, the bride and the bridegroom, a a wedding feast and a wedding celebration would last for a week at a time for these folks. So, and everything else was kind of put on hold, even things that were in in the Jewish uh, law. The things that they would do, they would kind of put that on hold until this wedding feast was over. So he was telling, once again, what he does so many times is explaining something to them about something that they knew to teach them something that they didn't know. But in this case, it's, it's, it goes even deeper than that. It's, uh, it, while it was a common example, wedding feasts and all of the things related to that were 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 happy events. They were events that brought a lot of joy to the folks that were there. And Jesus starts to play off of that picture in their mind in, in their mind about the the bridegroom and all of the things that are going on while the while the bridegroom is with them. You can hear these echoes of Ecclesiastes that talk about there is a time and there's a season for everything. And and we see that there Jesus is effectively saying there there's a season for tears, there's a season for fasting and weeping and all of those things. But that time isn't now. Yeah. The time right now is a time for joy, a time for, for celebration. Why? Because we have the Messiah who has come to to uh, appear in the, the the place where he is to reign, you know, and so there's a there's a joy inside of all of this. Another thing that's um, that is worth considering here, and you said it best when you said that there's there's always a shadow of something. There's something that's being communicated. Jesus will say words, but he means all of this, and not to jump into some sort of Gnostic nonsense where where we're always searching for some sort of hidden code. But we're talking about well-known meanings. Um, the, the wedding feast piece was really important. There was a time of joy in this association with the bridegroom and the attendants. Um, however, what Jesus is not talking about right now is really important as well. There is no Old Testament reference uh, that 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 scholars can find. There's no Old Testament reference, whether in the scriptures or in rabbinic writings, that tie uh, the term bridegroom with a messianic title. It doesn't mm. exist. Mm. And so Jesus is saying something, but he is not hiding in there. I'm I'm King and Lord. Mm-hmm. He's just he's simply not saying that. There's something that he is saying. It's a simple metaphor, but it is not a messianic claim mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I, I only say that because when we're studying the scripture, it is common for people to, to see some really fun parallel that they think they're seeing. But if you don't study and you don't look at what is actually true, what was said in times past, you might be making a connection that Jesus never made. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and of course, what is the danger there? The danger is that we're, we're adding something to the text that just isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the best interpretive plan that we could have is let's see what is there and let's not see what isn't there. Yeah. Let's just, we have enough if we're just looking at what is there, we are overwhelmed by what the scripture says when we just look at what is there, Absolutely. let alone adding to it. So. Absolutely. Uh, 35, I, I think it almost seems a, a little bit of a, an, an ominous statement when he says, but the days <laughs> will come 
And when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Fasting always denotes crying out to God. And to me, it's crying out to God for something that, that is, uh, that is serious. It's a serious issue that you're wanting God to intervene in. And, and this, this seems to denote that something is coming that the that that the attendance of the bridegroom yes. will fast at a point. We could we could again conjecture. We can just throw out ideas here. We could look at this as a, an example of of waiting for the day of Pentecost. But we don't know for sure. But what we do know is there is a day coming. Mm-hmm. There is a day coming that that is a longing. Um, but I think it worth mentioning that when it comes to fasting, of course, fasting was closely tied with repentance at times, mm-hmm. but fasting was also tied to a longing. We saw in the story of Anna that she was at the temple every day of her life, and she's praying, and and we we have this reference that she's she's fasting, she's praying, she's waiting for the same thing that Simeon was waiting for. They're waiting for the consolation of Israel. And so fasting is also tied with just a longing, a waiting. So maybe Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, hey, they're not fasting now, they're not praying now, but there's going to come a day when they're going to long. And so there's foreshadowing. He's going he's gonna to disappear for a while. Mm-hmm. We're going to have the Spirit of God. He's not going to leave us as orphans. He's never going to abandon us. But there's going to be a longing mm-hmm. of something, it would mm-hmm. appear. He goes right into telling them a parable, which is an interesting parable that I, it is, uh, it's so uh, uh, different than, than what he had just talked about, but uh, we get to talk about wine. We get to talk about, no. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so he it says uh, thirty six, and he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Uh, otherwise, he will tear. He will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Well, that that's pretty good seamstress stuff going going on there so far. <laughs> And then 37, and no one puts new wine into old, old wine skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. Uh, and no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. That's uh, such a such an interesting story. I'm I'm anxious to hear your thought on yes, that. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So it it is it is interesting, and I think verse thirty nine holds the key to what we're trying to understand here. First of all, this is a parable, mm-hmm. so we've got to we got to make sure that we're not we're not trying to take something uh, something literal. There is an image that's being painted here. Uh, uh, some sort of uh, an illusion that is that is uh, referring to something else. So no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new, uh, and the piece from the new will not match the old. So uh, you would think he'd just stop there and just kind of say his piece, but maybe that wasn't enough. So he goes on and he says, these two are the same. These two are similar. You don't tear a piece of cloth from a new garment and put it on an old one because then you have this separation issue. New to old, that's what we need to see on it. It's not so much about the cloth 
although the cloth gives us the picture, it is new to old. And then again, in verse 37, you've got new to old, and we're dealing with wineskins. And he specifically says that the old wineskins will, um, otherwise the new wineskins, my, my bad, the new wineskins will burst, the new wine will burst the skin. So he's referring to the new wine, but the old wineskin with mm-hmm. this new wine. Now, verse 39 says this, and it reverse, it seems to reverse the whole thing. Mm-hmm. He says, and no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. He's comparing new to old And he's telling these Pharisees, those inside of the old are not willing to take the new Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they're satisfied with their old system. The whole point here Mm -hmm. is to say, I'm bringing a new thing here. He's not saying, I'm bringing a new thing, therefore the law doesn't matter and nothing else matters and all this. No, he's bringing a new covenant. He's bringing a new thing. And... If he just goes and throws the new wine into it, they will not be able to handle it. He has to make the skin new. He has to make everything new. Otherwise, we have a problem. And here's the problem. The people who have drunk the old wine, the people who stay old, they don't wish for the new because the old's good enough for them. They're happy with this. This, these are fighting words, right? These, them's yes. fighting words. Yes. He's saying, you, I've got something new, but you don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. You don't want anything to do with this. But that verse 39 is staggering because that old wine, well, if you think about wine, it's aged. Mm-hmm. There's something mm-hmm. beauty, beautiful in that. But then there's this new wine and they think the old is good enough. He says, I, I have to make you new. I have to change this whole situation mm-hmm. around. So yeah. there's part of it. There, yes, I, I think it, 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 it is a good example of the grace of God and the mercy of God to show these folks and try and, and get them in the mindset to say, listen, uh, things are changing. And if you're not changing, if you're not a part of the new, you, you, you cannot stay a part of the old. You cannot and still be in right standing with God. That's the, that's the piece that, that, that just this absolutely amazes me is that God had the mercy and grace through Christ right then and there to say, guys, I'm going to tell you a story and I, I, it would be great if you get this, but it, I, it doesn't seem that they absolutely. did as it, as it ha- happened in many times, they did not understand what absolutely. he was saying. So, so with the cloth yet again, again, the cloth is just, just a picture, mm-hmm. but you notice what happens when the new is sewn into the old. It doesn't match. Yeah. It doesn't match the old. You notice what happens when the new wine is put in the old wineskin. It bursts the skin and it's ruined. Yeah. It says it's ruined. And so, uh, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Verse 38 is the I got to make all things new statement. And verse 39 is saying why you're in resistance, Pharisees. Because anybody who's drunk the old wine, Mm-hmm. Their statement is, ah, it's good enough. Yeah. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Now, this is interesting. It is not what Jesus was, was uh, talking about at all, but we see this principle play out when we see fights over tradition inside of even the modern church. We'll have an old way of doing it and a new way of doing it. And by these two, I mean things that are distinctly not sinful either way, <laughs> but There is a real hard, we have a hard way to go trying to match new with old. 
We just have a hard way to go. Mm-hmm. Same way it was with the cloth. It's, it's hard to match the new with the old. It's hard to match the new with the old because it tends to bust it. What you see when you see a, a church try to do, um, and, I'm, and I'm totally just throwing a thought out there for people to consider, but um, not according to the text here. But when you see a church that says, we're going to do a traditional service and we're going to do a contemporary service, um, it's been my observation that it's only a matter of time and then it's all contemporary all yeah, the time. Yeah. The traditional goes away. Uh, the The scary part about that is that that, it's what what's happening there is this same principle. You just can't fit them. They don't fit together. Now, there is a way to be charitable to both sides and to love each other and to care. Uh, but I don't know. It's, it's amazing. If Jesus were walking around today, he probably would say, listen, no one puts a contemporary yeah. <laughs> service in with a traditional service. Right. I'm just simply saying that that might be the illustration yeah. he might use yeah. in today's world. But uh, pretty fun conversation about yeah. Matthew chapter 5. Absolutely. So any final or parting no, thoughts? I, I just, as I was just thinking this through and your your thoughts on, on the churches and, and, and some of the things that we hold so dear today, are uh, things that we, the way that we do, and you've talked about this many, many times, the way that we do church today is not that necessarily new. It's, uh, it is, uh, it's, it's, it, or it is relatively new rather. Let me change that. It is relatively new. And, and so we're, we're doing things that, uh, that maybe our grandfather did or our great grand grandfather did, but that's not been that long ago. We, I think we have to go back to, uh, and start to look at all the things that you do and understand that uh, you can't make a uh, uh, it, it, you can't drive a stake in the ground on the way that you do church so much so that say, well, everybody else is wrong about it and yeah, we're right. It absolutely. just can't be that. Absolutely. So, uh, but it, yes, it's a fun, it's a fun talk to have. Very cool. Well, I hope, and I know that Barney does as well, we hope that you have a great day. Again, if there's questions, concerns, thoughts, anything that you uh, you want to contribute to this conversation, we want to hear about it. So go ahead and send us an email, piercepointchurch at gmail.com. Nathan Frankhauser, that's F-R-A-N-C-K-H-A-U-S-E-R at gmail.com because I keep getting asked. And Barney Estes at yahoo.com. So I want to encourage you send us emails, send us uh, your thoughts, questions, concerns, all those things. We love this conversation and it can continue to go if you'll play a part. God bless you guys. Have a great day.